Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The F-35 fighter jet is the most technologically advanced weapon system in history. Each one contains nearly a half a ton of what's called rare earth elements, almost all of which come from China. The guidance systems on weapon systems and Tomahawk cruise missile, any of the smart bombs have rare earths in them. I'd be hard pressed to name anything that we consider worth building today. today and going forward that would not have a rare earth component in it. Because of this, because of the monopoly on rare earths, does China threaten our national security? Unchecked, yes. Is there anything you can say, Barbara? Barbara Mancini was charged with helping her 93-year-old terminally ill father kill himself. She says he couldn't have been clearer about how he wanted his life to end. He asked me to hand him the bottle, and I did. I had the dosing syringe in my hand. He took the cap off and he drank what was remaining in the bottle. Could you have stopped him? I could have, I think. I mean, it, he did it pretty quickly. But no, I didn't try to stop him. Should terminally ill people be able to end their own lives? That's our story tonight. This is inside the Washington Monument, the moment an earthquake struck Washington, D.C. in 2011. One of the nation's most treasured memorials now had to close. It would take a Superman to put it back together again, but in fact, it was Clark Kent in a suit and tie, armed with just a Blackberry and a passion for American history. It's a shorter version of it. He's David Rubenstein, and he's spent hundreds of millions of his own fortune to help save the monument and some of the other great symbols of American democracy.
I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Morley Safer. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. You know that feeling you get when you get things done with just the click of your mouse? It can't get more convenient than that. And now you can even get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk, thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. Talk about convenient. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. Then just hand your mail to the mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. You'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, use the promo code 60MINUTES for this special offer. A no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale that calculates exact postage for letters and packages. And up to $55 of free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in 60 Minutes. That's Stamps.com. Enter 60 Minutes. What do cars, precision-guided missiles, and the television you're watching right now have in common? They all depend on something called rare earth elements, unusual metals that are sprinkled inside almost every piece of high-tech you can think of. Most people have never heard of them, but we have become so reliant on rare earths that a few years ago, an intense global power struggle broke out over their free flow. The reason is that one country has a virtual monopoly, roughly 90% of the mining, refining, and processing of rare earths, China. And in 2010, it used that power to disrupt the world supply. As we first reported last March, it's especially troubling because it was the United States that started the rare earth revolution in the first place. It all began here, at this mine in Mountain Pass, California, an hour west of Las Vegas, when geologists first identified rare earth elements deep in the Mojave Desert. They were considered geological oddities until the 60s, when it was discovered that one of these elements, europium, enhanced the color red in TV sets, and soon the rare earth industry was born. CBS presents this program in color. Rare earth chemistry is fascinating. There's so many more things that we could be doing with rare earths. Constantine Karyanopoulos, chairman of Molycorp, which has owned and operated the Mountain Pass mine for six decades, took us to the heart of the operation. Is this considered a big mine? In terms of rare earth standards, yes. It's, a, it's one of the biggest in the world. Are we actually walking on rare earth elements right now? We're physically on the ore body. We are right on it. It starts at the top of the mine and comes down, and we're walking on it, and it goes in that direction. So what are rare earth elements? If you ever took high school chemistry, you learn that they're clumped together at the end of the periodic table, atomic numbers 57 through 71, and they have difficult-to-pronounce Greek or Scandinavian names. Lanthanum, cerium, neodymium, praseodymium, samarium, terbium. Some of them are phosphorescent. Erbium amplifies light and is used in fiber optic cables. Gadolinium has magnetic properties and is used in MRI machines and x-rays. As for neodymium, you may be carrying some of it in your pocket. Next time your phone vibrates, 
think yeah. of us because the vibration motor is a small motor that contains a tiny neodymium magnet in it. Carrie Anopoulos showed us around a new model home to illustrate that rare earths are making our appliances energy efficient, like state-of-the-art refrigerators, touchscreen thermostats, energy-efficient light bulbs, the air conditioning systems. They're also in our cars in the form of catalytic converters, sensors, and hybrid car batteries. Hybrids in particular use a lot more because they contain electric motors that would not function without rare earths. A Prius has roughly 25 pounds of rare earths, and they're hidden in plain sight in our everyday lives, in our computers and gadgets. Even the lights and cameras we use to film this story are chock full of rare earths. What I'm getting from you is that modern life depends on these elements. Absolutely. Despite their name, rare earths are not rare. Small amounts can be found in your backyard. They're trapped in what looks like ordinary rock, but there are only a few places on earth with concentrations high enough to mine. Rare earths normally are found in very, very low concentrations. This is probably running something in the 25% grade, That's which good. is remarkable. To anyone who has ever worked with rare earths, this is a thing of beauty. But getting the rare earths out of that rock is nasty business, requiring toxic acids and lots of water. In fact, the mine was shut down by the state of California in 1998 after radioactive water seeped into the surrounding Mojave Desert from an underground pipe. The mine lay dormant for a decade, giving China an opportunity. The Chinese made a very conscious decision to enter that industry. Dan McGrurity was special assistant to President George H.W. Bush and today advises the U.S. government on critical materials. When the Mollycorp mine closed, he says China was already well on its way to becoming the king of rare earths. There's a point at which the lines cross. The United States production declines, the Chinese production is ramping up. Those lines crossed somewhere around 1986. So how did they pull it off? What, what were the factors that allowed them to basically take this away from us? Well, uh, the advantage of lower labor costs would be a place to start. Also, environmentally, very, almost no environmental constraints around mining, safety considerations for the miners doing the mining, in huge contrast to the United States. So that translates directly into lower pricing. Yeah. And lower pricing can push other people out of the market. And that's basically what happened. It's basically what happened. The Chinese also had orders from the top. In a little-noticed speech in 1992, Deng Xiaoping signaled China's intention to corner the market. What exactly did he say? Yeah. The Middle East has oil. China has rare earths. He actually said that, actually Deng said Xiaoping. That. Yeah. I think it's fair to say at that point people in the rest of the world would have been saying, what, are, what is he talking about? Just went right over our heads. I think so. Did we just not foresee what they foresaw? It's extraordinary if they actually foresaw all the uses. Our designers and developers advanced the uh, miniaturized uh, applications for laptops and cell phones while the Chinese were going after the metals and materials out of which these things are actually built. How did they get the know-how? An enormous amount of investment. It's kind of like the Chinese moonshot, the moon program. China poured billions into the industry, ignoring the consequences. We obtained this video from a freelance cameraman showing the area near Baotou, China's rare earth capital, 
where the air, land, and water are so saturated with chemical toxins, the Chinese have had to relocate entire villages. This is one of the few places where rare earths are turned into metals, which are then alloyed or blended into things like permanent magnets. These are magnets that once you magnetize them, they stay that way. Ed Richardson, president of the U.S. Magnetic Materials Association, says the most important use of rare earths is in magnets. Only a small amount can produce magnets able to lift a thousand times their weight. This is a cell phone. He showed us how miniaturized rare earth magnets can be. So I'm going to take it apart layer by layer, and we're going to get to the point where we can actually see the magnets, the rare earth magnets that are inside them. Oh, let me see it's magnetic. This. There's three little magnets in there. Oh, one, two, three. Right. Now, if you put the paper clip on there, you can see how it sticks. And this little tiny thing is the, is the speaker. Right. This is how devices have gotten small, very powerful. You don't, because the magnets are so powerful, you don't have to use much of it. The U.S. developed this technology, but China bought most of it right out from under us. For instance, in 1995, China bought the biggest American rare earth magnet company, MagnaQuench, which was based in Indiana. When they bought the factory, they now had the patents, they now had the equipment, and they actually had some of the MagnaQuench employees in the United States go to China and teach the people how to make the products. Did we not understand the strategic importance of keeping that industry here? We didn't get it. And unfortunately, the technology was transferred to China before that technology was appreciated. And now we're seeing so many, for instance, defense systems that are dependent on it. Does that make us dependent on China for our defense systems? Oh, we are very dependent on China. We are dependent on China for our weaponry. Right. A prime example of that is the new F-35 fighter jet, the most technologically advanced weapon system in history. Each one contains nearly half a ton of rare earths. Former White House official Dan McGroarty says that's just for starters. The guidance systems on weapon systems and Tomahawk cruise missile, any of the smart bombs have rare earths in them, um, lasers. I'd be hard-pressed to name You'd anything name that we consider worth building today. today and going forward that would not have a rare earth component in it. Because of this, because of the monopoly on rare earths, does China threaten our national security? Unchecked, yes. What finally woke up the U.S. government was an incident at sea in 2010. A Chinese fishing trawler rammed a Japanese Coast Guard ship in a territorial dispute. The Japanese seized the boat's captain, and two weeks later, China stopped shipping rare earths to Japan. The Chinese cut them off, and for 30 to 40 days, the rare earths did not flow to Japan. So it was a real shot across the bow to the Japanese that this is something that you have to be worried with. It was a wake-up call. Finally, 20 years after Deng Xiaoping's speech, rare earths were on the U.S. radar screen. This case involves something called rare earth materials. President Obama announced a formal complaint to the World Trade Organization against China for creating shortages for foreign buyers. And last August, the WTO ruled against Beijing. 
No one in the Obama administration would talk to us on camera about rare earths and our dependence on China, including the Department of Energy, the Pentagon, or the U.S. Trade Representative. Even the private sector didn't want to discuss the problem. We tried to get interviews with heads of companies that use the magnets and other right. products coming out of China, and yeah. they would not talk to us. Yeah. Is there fear in, in high-tech companies that if they say something negative, maybe China won't sell them what they need? I think that there is grave concern in these companies, but perhaps not a willingness to talk about that on the street corner. So what is the U.S. doing to restore the industry here? Out in California, Molly Corp was allowed to reopen after it developed new technology that protects the environment. But even when it's at full capacity, the mine will only produce a fraction of the world's supply of rare earths. The Pentagon has begun stockpiling rare earths, and industry is researching new technologies that would replace them. Do you get any help from the U.S. government? They want to have a rare earth industry here. Encouragement, yeah. Encouragement. <laughs> That's yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the government is not offering incentives like tax breaks or subsidies that would lure businesses into the market. What needs to, to change to bring more of the industry back to the United States? Well, first of all, we need to take a long-term view. It took 20 years to lose the dominant position, at least 20 years, and it's probably going to take us 10, 15 years, if we execute, for some of these supply chains to start coming back. But trouble is once again looming for the U.S. rare earth industry. Since restarting operations two years ago, Mollycorp's Mountain Pass mine has yet to turn a profit and is so deeply in debt it recently filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. See how rare earths make common conveniences. This is the microphone right. on the cell phone. Go to 60minutesovertime.com, sponsored by Lyrica. Should doctors and family members be allowed to help terminally ill people end their own lives rather than succumb to the last ravages of disease? The question has been the subject of a fierce and long-running state-by-state battle. In the vast majority of states, the practice is currently not allowed, or else it's unclear and quite possibly illegal. Our story tonight is about a woman who was prosecuted for allegedly helping her 93-year-old father kill himself. Barbara Mancini lives in Pennsylvania. As we first reported last year, her father was terminally ill and in pain and had repeatedly said he wanted to die. One morning, while she was caring for him, Mancini says he asked her to hand him his bottle of morphine. He asked me to hand him the bottle, and I did. I had the dosing syringe in my hand. He took the cap off, and he drank what was remaining in the bottle. Could you have stopped him? I could have, I think. I mean... It, he did pretty quickly. But no, I didn't try to stop him. This is Barbara Mancini and her father, Joe Yorshaw, in happier times at Barbara's wedding in 1994. Yorshaw had served in Europe during World War II and earned a bronze star in the Battle of the Bulge. Barbara had always known him to be industrious and strong-minded. He was active well into his 80s. 
But in 2013, he was 93 and suffering from kidney disease, cardiovascular problems, and a host of other ailments. His medical records say doctors expected him to live six months or less, and he was telling anyone who'd listen he wanted to die. He had very focused convictions about how he wanted to live, and being independent was a big part of that. He didn't want to wind up infirm in a hospital bed on a no. feeding tube? Absolutely not. He was adamant that he never wanted to be in a hospital. He put his wishes in writing and made Barbara his health care proxy. He stopped taking medications that might prolong his life and enrolled in a home hospice program that prescribed small doses of morphine he could drink to ease his pain. It was in February 2013 at his home in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, that Barbara says he asked her to hand him that bottle of morphine. What did you think when you saw him drink it? I said, well, I think you just drank a lot of morphine there. And he said, I want to go to sleep. And I just sat down next to him, and I held his hand, and he laid back, and we started to talk. Did part of you think this is him saying goodbye? Yes. Did you think at all about calling a hospital or calling a doctor? No, I would not have done that because it was expressly against his wish. And I I promised him I would honor his wishes. She did tell a hospice nurse who visited the house that morning what had happened, and the hospice called the police. An officer soon came to the door. He told me I no longer had any say in what happened to my father. And he was taken to the hospital? He was. What happened to you? I was arrested on the spot. Did they tell you why you were under arrest? The police captain said I was being arrested for aiding a suicide. What's the penalty for that? Up to 10 years in prison. Barbara Mancini believes that what happened that morning should not be against the law. And in some states, it isn't. We love you, you, Raj. If he'd lived in Oregon, Joe Yorshaw might have been able to end his life as this man did, as captured in a 2011 documentary. You have the right to change your mind. My mind's not changing. This lethal potion of barbiturates was legally prescribed after two doctors certified he was terminally ill and mentally competent. Because all the requirements of Oregon's law were followed, no one involved was in danger of prosecution, even though some of them helped him kill himself. More than 800 people in Oregon have used lethal prescriptions to end their lives since that state enacted its Death with Dignity Act 18 years ago. Washington and Vermont now have similar laws. In Montana and New Mexico, courts have ruled it's legal under existing law. Everywhere else, surveys suggest, the practice goes on very quietly to keep physicians and caregivers out of trouble. What happened to Barbara Mancini was rare, but the risk of what happened to her pervades every bedside of every dying individual. Barbara Coombs-Lee is president of Compassion and Choices, one of the nation's largest advocacy groups on end-of-life issues. She helped write Oregon's Death with Dignity Act and believes every state needs a similar law. Without it, she argues, doctors still write lethal prescriptions, but they do it in secret, without any standards. Doctors often write prescriptions for life any medication for each other, just as they write prescriptions for life any medications for their patients, with winks and nods. And it shouldn't be done with winks and nods? It should be a transparent, open process. That's how you make a practice safe. 
There are, of course, all sorts of objections, some religious, some moral, and some from doctors themselves. Anything we can do to just make this day a little better for you? Dr. Ira Bayak is a Dartmouth professor and head of the Providence Healthcare Systems Institute for Human Caring. He's been nationally recognized for his efforts to provide terminally ill patients with better care, but he is strongly opposed to laws like Oregon's. There are certain things that people aren't supposed to do to one another. As absolutes, they are not okay. Doctors killing patients is not okay. But shouldn't people have the ability to, to determine the, the, when their life is no longer worth living? You know, when a physician is involved in a suicide, it's a social action. And if you want to look at societies like Belgium and, and Netherlands, well, nowadays, people who have just lost interest in living or are clinically depressed are being euthanized legally. Is there anything you can say, Barbara? Barbara Mancini was released on bail, but she was forced to take an unpaid leave from her job as an ER nurse. The case against her was complicated by the fact that her father did not die right away when he got to the hospital. His medical records indicate he responded well to a drug that reversed the effects of the morphine, and he awoke in the ER. My mother and my sister-in-law were with him, and they said they had never seen him so angry in his, in his entire life. He pulled out his IV. He pulled out his own IV? Yeah. He apparently pulled off the, uh, the wires for the heart monitor and tried to get up and leave. Four days after being taken to the hospital, Joe Yorshaw died. Though his death certificate lists morphine toxicity as the primary cause, hospital records suggest a number of other possible causes, including aspiration pneumonia and failure to thrive. The records also show that because of his daughter's arrest, Yorshaw's family allowed the hospital to provide medical treatment he specifically said in his living will he didn't want. Barbara Coombs-Lee says studies in medical journals indicate that's common, even when there's no arrest. I think most people don't realize that an advance directive, the paper that we fill out and have other people sign as witnesses, it can't mandate, it can't require a doctor or a health care provider to do anything or not to do anything. I think most people think the complete opposite. Actually, in order for those wishes to have any force, they have to be reduced to a medical order. But only two states have well-established systems to ensure that a medical order regarding life-sustaining treatment will be respected throughout the health care system. In other states, there's no guarantee. Barbara Mancini's court case dragged on for months. Though Compassion and Choices helped pay some of her attorney's fees, the legal bills mounted. And so, she says, did the stress on her family. Did you feel that you had aided a suicide? No, I didn't. I felt like what I did was hand my father his medicine. Now, he didn't tell me I'm going to kill myself today. He asked me for the medicine. You think if Pennsylvania had a law like they have in Oregon, things would have been different? I do. And I also feel that he should have had the option if he wanted it. But Dr. Bayak, who reviewed Joe Yorshaw's records at our request, questions whether Yorshaw would have needed a death with dignity law to end his life if he had simply received better end-of-life care from his hospice. If I was his family, I would have been livid. Why? They were just doing the regulatory minimum uh, for Mr. Yorshaw. And, uh, and they weren't really addressing his suffering to the extent it, it needed to be.
In a statement, the Hospice of Central Pennsylvania said, By law, we are unable to comment on this specific case, but the care we provide greatly exceeds the regulatory minimum. Asked why it called the police to the Yorshaw home, the hospice said its nurses must obey the laws, and state law makes it a crime for someone to aid another in committing suicide. Hospice records revealed Joe Yorshaw to have been a difficult patient who at times refused to take any medication. But the records also show Yorshaw repeatedly told hospice workers that he suffered from pain all over and felt that by living, he was being a burden to his family. I think that this case is emblematic of how we are failing elders, chronically ill people, vulnerable people in America. Failing how? In so many ways. We are, you know, not treating people's suffering. We are making them feel undignified. Ask any boomer who's cared for their parents. They'll tell you that even for those of us who are doctors and nurses, it's really, really hard to get the basics of care for, for your frail loved one met. Barbara Mancini would say, well, if, if Pennsylvania had the kind of laws that, that Oregon now has, which would have allowed her father to, to get some, some medicine that could have ended his life, whether he chose to use it or not, that would have at least given him a sense of, of peace. So what we're saying to Mr. Yorshaw is um, we're not going to treat your pain. We're not going to train your doctors to counsel you. We're going to basically ignore you. But don't worry, because if the time comes when you're feeling hopeless, we can write that lethal prescription. In, in what world is that a progressive, positive development? Is it possible that your father swallowed that morphine because he was in a lot of pain. Yes. And he didn't want to be a, a burden to, to your family rather than a real desire to end his life. That certainly is quite possible. Well, is that an argument for better end-of-life care as Absolutely. opposed to, you know, Death with Dignity Act? Or, uh, I don't know why better end-of-life care and Death with Dignity can't coexist. Why not? A year after Barbara Mancini was arrested, a state judge dismissed the charges against her, ruling that the prosecution's case appears to have been based on little independent investigation and significant hearsay. Good afternoon. My name is Barbara Mancini. Last year, Mancini left her nursing job to work with Compassion and Choices, encouraging other states to pass laws similar to Oregon's. She's fighting for a cause now, but says she's also struggling to come to terms with what happened to her father. There are some nights I lie awake in bed and I just relive this whole thing. And less of it has to do with what happened to me. More of it has to do with picturing him lying there in that ER, crying out, knowing what I read in the, the hospital record. The way he died haunts you? Yes because the way his life ended was exactly the way he didn't want it to end. With no control in pain, having things done to him. And I feel terrible about it. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The all-American in this story is a billionaire with a conscience. His name is David Rubenstein, and he's pledging to give away much of his fortune to the government.
for the care and maintenance of our history. As we reported in May, checks for 15, 20 million are just chicken feed. Among his recipients, Jefferson's home, Monticello, rare historical documents, the care and feeding of pandas, and most dramatic, the restoration of the Washington Monument. This is inside the Washington Monument, the moment an earthquake struck Washington, D.C. in 2011. One of the nation's most treasured memorials now had to close. It would take a Superman to put it back together again, but in fact, it was Clark Kent in a suit and tie, armed with just a Blackberry and a passion for American history. It's a monument to our first president and to the Revolutionary War general. How did he manage to pull it off? Not with muscles, but with money. Lots of money. It's a shorter version of it. Our Clark Kent is David Rubenstein. When he heard about the damage, he offered to pay the $15 million it would take to repair it. Isn't that what government is supposed to do? Well, the government doesn't have the resources it used to have. We have gigantic budget deficits and large debt. I think private citizens need to pitch in. Co-chair of the campaign for the National Mall, David Rubenstein. Congress, not wanting to be shown up by a single patriotic American, ended up offering to split the bill. And the monument reopened to much fanfare last spring. He's so far spent over $50 million on rare historical documents, like original copies of the Declaration of Independence and the Emancipation Proclamation, which now hangs in the Oval Office. And he's looking to spend millions more to restore national monuments like the Lincoln Memorial and the homes of the Founding Fathers. In honor of George Washington, um, we built the Washington Monument. We met up with him at Mount Vernon, George Washington's home, where he gave us a tour and an impromptu history lesson which led inevitably to the Founders' teeth, or absence thereof. George Washington only had one tooth, and he used that one tooth to hunt a hold in his dentures. And they were called wooden teeth, but not because they were wood. They were animal teeth. But he had a doctor in New York who's named Dr. Greenwood, and it was shortened to wooden teeth. What they do is they take animal teeth, put them together in a denture. But you need something to hook it onto. So he had his one tooth, and that's why you'll never see a picture of him with his mouth open, because it didn't look good. You're somewhat of a George Washington scholar. Well, I wouldn't say a scholar, but I'd say a fan. Why did you choose him? As it was said at his uh, funeral, he was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. Unlike most multi-billionaires, Rubenstein doesn't have a foundation and personally oversees each gift from his modest Washington office. How do you make the judgment? Because you don't have a staff, correct? I don't have a, a staff, but I uh, generally look at things where my money will make a difference. And in patriotic philanthropy, I, I think I can do some things because not as many people are doing things in medical research or other kinds of areas like that. But you seem to make these decisions spur of the moment. Sometimes the best decisions of life are on the spur of the moment. So I generally try to do what I think is right, and sometimes I've made mistakes. You care to talk about your mistakes? <laughs> I would take more than 60 minutes. <laughs> Rubenstein's foray into patriotic philanthropy began on a whim when, on a business trip to New York, he heard the last privately held copy of the 800-year-old British Magna Carta would be auctioned off the next day and would most likely leave the country. Rubenstein sent his wallet into action. The head auctioneer came in and said, you just bought the Magna Carta. Uh, who are you? We don't know who you are. 
And I explained, and they said, okay, you can be yours if you uh, have the money. You do have the money for this. I said, yes. And they said, okay, you can leave the side door, nobody ever know, or there's 100 reporters who want to know who bought it. And I said, I will go out and talk to them to tell them that I'm giving it to the country, in effect, as a down payment on my obligation to give back to the country. What are the symbols on the seal? Beyond the $21 million purchase price, Rubenstein built a multi-million dollar center at the National Archives to showcase the document that served as the inspiration not only for our Bill of Rights, but for all Western democracy. And if you're better uh, informed about American history, you can be a better citizen. His friend Warren Buffett says Rubenstein's approach is unique. He may wake up in the morning without uh, knowing what that philanthropic act is going to be by sundown, but but some something will spark his interest, and when it does, he he, he can move. Jonathan Jarvis is director of the National Park Service. He oversees the nation's memorials. Have you ever had any offers of somebody who's come forth with his attitude and his dough? <laughs> uh, not really. Um, I think David is somewhat unique and is sort of occupying this space of patriotic philanthropy at the moment. What else has he offered to pay for it? Well, the, the next big project he did after the Washington Monument was the Robert E. Lee Memorial, which sits at Arlington Cemetery. He gave us $12.3 to do a full restoration. And then uh, he has also offered, just recently, $5 million to restore the um, Marine Corps War Memorial, the Iwo Jima. David recognized that this is an opportunity to give back to the country and also to recognize the Marine Corps, uh, where his father served. The people in the House are wondering, who are these crazy people <laughs> who are out here? Probably wonder whether I'm about to be indicted for something. We traveled with Rubenstein and his mother, Betty, to the home he grew up in, in working-class Baltimore. His father was a mail sorter at the post office. When I was growing up here, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I thought one thing I didn't want to do was what you wanted me to do. My is... dream from the small child up that you become a dentist. Rubenstein disappointed his mother and instead went to law school. Then at age 27, he landed a job in the White House, an advisor to President Carter. How would you rate yourself as a public servant? I enjoyed it very much. I'm not sure the country enjoyed what I did for the country. I like to say that uh, there was a rumor that I was going to be promoted in the second term, and that's why President Carter lost. And since I have left the White House, uh, I can tell you, honestly, nobody's ever invited me back. When he was booted from the White House, along with Jimmy Carter in 1980, Rubenstein tried lawyering, but says he was terrible at it. So in 1987, he and two partners decided to start one of the first D.C.-based investment firms, which they named after a New York hotel. What made you decide to call the company Carlisle? Carlisle sounded kind of British, and it sounded kind of, uh, maybe not aristocratic, but sounded like you'd been around for a while when we really hadn't been around. We were new. It's now a global giant, over $200 billion in assets. For years, the firm had a reputation as politically connected and secretive. Carlisle's success made Rubenstein a fortune. He says his wife Alice and three kids support his decision to give most of it away. In the end, um, it's not clear that if you give a child $500 million, he or she will win a Nobel Prize for doing something. And I think if you give somebody too much money, it can force them not to work as hard and be as productive. A cardinal sin in Rubenstein's eyes. 
and in 2010, he was one of the first to sign on to the Giving Pledge with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. The guy who was the mapmaker was from Connecticut. So promising to give away at least half of his billions to worthy causes. I think many of the members of the Giving Society, and certainly including David, would like to have their last check bounce. I mean, that's their goal. <laughs> it's a little hard to time things perfectly so that happens. But there's no Forbes 400 in the graveyard. Like Warren Buffett, Rubenstein isn't flashy. He drives a 20-year-old car. He doesn't drink or smoke, but he's allowed himself one super luxury, a $65 million plane he uses to fly around the world, an average of 200 days a year. He is a man in motion, appearing on TV. It's a global investment world that we're dealing with. Boosting his firm. And I started at the first buyout firm in Washington, D.C., sitting on 26 non-for-profit boards. How many people have never been here before? And taking his stand-up comedy routine on the road. I became the deputy domestic policy advisor to the president of the United States, a job I obviously wasn't qualified for, but Carter wasn't qualified either, I thought, so. When you became wealthy enough to sort of sit back, you remained a workaholic. It's not work for me. I am not under any pressure or stress uh, when I'm doing this. When I... Um, uh, I'm trying to relax. If I ever do that, that's when I'm under stress. And I think I'm more likely to have a heart attack when I'm relaxing than when I'm under uh, working. Takes a lot of brains to do what we do. Looking for a way to make some dough for you. Energy. Work now including learning how to rap after Carlisle doubled its money in an investment in the headphone company Beats by Dre. For global, for mobile, for aiming to please, only go online, server LPs. I did meet Dr. Dre when we were first doing the deal, and we did a takeoff on that for our holiday video. I haven't done anything like this really since my bar mitzvah. And when I did it, it was supposed to take five minutes, and it took about four hours. And they had a young rap coach for me to explain how to do this, and he said, Mr. Rubenstein, you are the whitest man I've ever met in my life. How are the legs after going up the stairs? I didn't Excellent. need a uh, defibrillator. I didn't have to go to the hospital. <laughs> Rubenstein may use self-deprecation as a form of bragging, and if you don't get the message, he puts his name on his good works. $20 million here, $75 million there, soon adds up to real money. He even joked he put his initials at the top of the Washington Monument. I took my pen out and I put my initials at the very top of the Washington Monument. So if you ever get there, um, you'll see my initials. How important is the recognition? Because you put your name on most of the things you support. Is that, I think, what, to use a Yiddish word, chutzpah? Maybe I have a character flaw and I haven't done it as anonymously because I'm trying to say to people, I came from very modest circumstances and look what I was able to do. You can do the same thing. And while the vast majority of his wealth goes to inanimate objects, Rubenstein took care of D.C.'s favorite residents, Mama Bear Mei Zhang, Papa Bear Tian Tian, and Baby Bear Bao Bao when the National Zoo ran out of money. I said, okay, I'll put up the money to keep them here because the Chinese rent pandas. You pay a million dollars a year, more or less, and you get two pandas, and the money goes for panda conservation. Sweet potatoes, right? Pandas are the biggest attraction at the zoo, and uh, when the government had it shut down, people weren't calling in to say they weren't getting their Social Security checks or Congress wasn't moving <laughs> forward anything. They were saying the panda cam was shut down. <laughs> Richard Nixon first brought the pandas to the U.S. after his historic trip to China in 1972. Panda diplomacy may have worked, 
compared to love life is another matter. You've compared the relationship between male and female pandas with the U.S. Congress. Members of Congress know what they're supposed to do, but they don't know how to do it. The pandas know what they're supposed to do, but they fumble. They come here with the best of intentions, but sometimes things don't work out the way that they're supposed to. So it's bye-bye, bow-bow, and thank you, Mr. Rubenstein. So I don't think anything I've said has impressed bow-bow. No, no. I'm Leslie Stahl. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. And tomorrow, be sure to watch CBS This Morning. Always on the go? Now you can take CBS Mornings with you. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews with today's leading figures in politics, business, and entertainment in the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast. It's available every weekday wherever you get your podcasts. Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at ParamountShop.com. You can take 20% off with code MINUTES20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with code MINUTES20 at ParamountShop.com. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.